0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Solidarity means providing the financial resources to help the poor lift themselves out of poverty. But subsidiarity says you want to do this in a way that's not just throwing money at them in a very paternalistic manner, but in a way that respects their agency and dignity as human beings. And so I think it's very important. Pope Francis says you help the poor by befriending the poor and by learning from the poor. It's not just a one-way street.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash That's patreo dot com radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Anthony M. Annette. He is a Gabelli Fellow at Fordham University and a senior advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University and spent two decades at the International Monetary Fund, where he worked as a speechwriter to the managing director. He's also a member of the College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Today, we're talking about his recent book, *Cathonomics*: How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. Anthony, Annette, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you, David. It's a great pleasure to be here with you
0: today. So I I want to say, first of all, how much I learned from your book, Cathonomics, because what you are doing here is tremendous. You're drawing together things that I already knew, but you're showing me how they apply in new ways. So I'm familiar with Catholic social teaching. I'm a little familiar with the kind of basics of neoclassical economics, but you wove all of those together in a way where... You showed me a way of looking at the last 50 years, basically the span of my life here on this earth, and helped me to understand it and to ground it in a way that I had never had before. So I just want to start out our conversation with my immense gratitude for the work and the time that it took to create a book like this, because it really is just a set of kind of masterpiece arguments. So just right out of the gate, I just want to say thank you
1: for that. Oh, thank you, David. I very much appreciate your kind remarks.
0: Well, and with that now, let's begin to set the stage for our listeners. So one of the sort of main ideas that forms a spine for your book, *Cathonomics*, is that for the past four decades, more or less, we have been involved in a global economic experiment known as neoliberalism. I wonder if you could briefly define for listeners, when we use a term like neoliberalism, what are we saying in broad strokes?
1: Yeah, that's a good place to start. I think neoliberalism is basically the ascendancy of free market libertarianism. So it's basically the idea that free and open markets, open capital accounts, free trade, curbing uh, the role of government in the economy, financial deregulation, all of this will somehow unleash the dynamism of the private sector and lead to rising prosperity. So that was the defining moral narrative of neoliberalism. And it was a very powerful narrative, to be honest. What, what interests me
0: in your answer, two pieces actually jump out to me. One You just said that this was a a defining moral narrative. I think that might surprise some of our listeners that you immediately begin to couch this in terms of morality versus terms of, let's say, prosperity. Why do you make that move? Why do we call it a moral, defining it in moral terms rather than some other more
1: pragmatic terms? Because I believe that for a narrative to take root, as neoliberalism did, it has to be rooted in a sense of a moral narrative. And the moral narrative of neoliberalism is very simplistic. It's actually the idea that this economic liberty, this freedom will unleash the creativity of the human spirit and lead to rising prosperity to everybody in a way that trickles down even to the poorest of society. So again, that is a moral narrative. That's a narrative about what the right thing is to do. And as I said before, it's kind of a powerful narrative. It just turns out to have been quite wrong.
0: What I appreciate about what you just said is you naturally led into my second question that I wanted to ask you about. You use the term free market libertarianism. And I think sometimes, especially for those that are in favor of this kind of free market libertarianism, there is, if you will, a moral narrative that libertarianism will lead to more liberty. In other words, that there will be more freedom if our markets are free. Now, first of all, I want to make sure, is that consonant in some way with your own observation? And if that kind of comparison, if I'm right, that comparison often gets made. Libertarianism is equated with liberty. What's wrong
1: with making that move? Yeah, it's, I think it's a right argument to make. It's certainly an argument that was made by some of the godfathers of neoliberalism, like Hayek and Friedman. The problem with what's wrong with making that move is that Libertarianism predicated on freedom, predicated on self ownership, goes against some very different philosophies of moral philosophy. The idea that we have duties and obligations towards our fellow human beings, towards the natural world. There are such things as solidarity and the common good. All of this is rejected by libertarianism. It's rejected by neoliberalism because it's seen as. Irrelevant, basically.
0: So, a moment ago, you mentioned a name, Friedman. And I'm assuming by that you mean Milton Friedman, who was one of the vanguards of what came to be called the Chicago School of Economics based at the University of Chicago. So, if I'm correct, that was the Friedman that you were referring to. I want to bring in another faculty member from the University of Chicago, Gary Becker, who you mentioned in one of your chapters in Cathonomics. And I I think that this will illustrate for our listeners what we're meaning when we're talking about the kind of libertarianism that has been at the heart of neoliberalism. And Gary Becker's basic argument is that everything from crossing a border to being engaged in a marriage to any kind of human interaction should be governed by market economics. Now, first of all, have I said that correctly? And if so, how, how can Gary Becker show us the kind of moral narratives of libertarianism that you're talking about or of neoliberalism that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, you've said it very correctly, actually. Gary Becker was probably the most extreme free market economist that's ever been minted, to be honest. He had a view that the economic dimension of life, the rational economic man, the Homo economicus, who looks at costs and looks at financial costs and benefits of every action, should be extended through to all aspects of the social life, including family life, including marriage, including organ donation, including selling kidneys, including, he had an idea called rational addiction. If you're taking heroin, it's because you value your present happiness rather than your future happiness, so it's perfectly rational to do that in accordance with your own preferences. This is crazy stuff. But this is kind of where if you take the economic approach to life, the maximizing your utility approach to life, and extend it to all dimensions of society and social life, this is where you end up. Let me take a moment and
0: reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette, and we're talking about his recent book, Cathonomics, How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. Well, we've been talking on the economic side for the last few minutes. I want to take a moment and shift gears here because another through line of your book, Cathonomics, is the idea of Catholic social teaching. Some of my listeners may be familiar with that idea or those terms, but others may not. And so let's just take a moment, and again, in broad strokes, when we're talking about Catholic social teaching, what are we talking about?
1: Right. So we are talking quite specifically about a series of papal documents called encyclicals that were written by popes from the end of the 19th century, that's Rerum Novarum of Pope Leo XIII from 1893, all the way through to Pope Francis, who wrote the document called Fratelli Tutti, Brothers and Sisters All, in 2020. Now, what these documents try to do is they try to take the timeless moral principles of the Judeo-Christian tradition and apply them to very concrete, specific modern circumstances, whether it's the industrial revolution in the 19th century, all the way through to the environmental crisis in the present day. And in Cathenomics, I argue that even though these popes and these documents had different voices and different emphases and different personalities, you can nonetheless derive a consistent set of moral principles that stand as an alternative to the principles we just talked about, the principles of neoclassical economics that inform neoliberalism. So that, in a nutshell, is what Catholic social teaching in the realm of economics is all about. Let me make sure
0: that I've got it, and please feel free to correct me if any of this is not on the mark. But so if I'm hearing you correctly, from about 200 years ago to the present day, Various popes have looked at concrete situations in the world and have applied, if I can paraphrase what you said, the sort of wisdom of the Abrahamic tradition, the Old and New Testament sort of notions of how we should relate to one another, and have looked at those concrete situations and said, here is how the Catholic Church is going to suggest that you live in this particular concrete situation. Now, first of all, do I have those basic moves correct?
1: That's exactly right, yes.
0: And I'm also hearing you saying that these papal documents, these encyclicals, would not only give broad strokes about how you're supposed to be a good person, but would give practical would they give practical wisdom about how, for example, you're supposed to live in a certain economic condition? Like, d- does or Let me ask the question this way. Do these encyclicals advocate for the kind of free markets that we've been talking about, or do they advocate for socialism, or do they advocate for feudalism? What are the kind of concrete solutions that these documents are offering as we read them through the centuries?
1: Right, right. So they offer a very cautionary narrative about the dangers of Any kind of extreme ideology, whether it's on the one hand, free market libertarianism or on the other hand, communist collectivism. So they definitely will accept the validity of a market economy predicated on private property, but they will often also say that private property is not an absolute right. It's only a conditional right and the needs of all must be met. So what that means in practical terms is a market economy might be valid, but it needs to be encased in a moral boundary. And that moral boundary means that you have to respect the economic rights, not just the property rights of all people, the right to such goods as food, shelter, education, healthcare, just wages, rewarding decent work. All of these things are considered rights in the Catholic tradition. So yes, we can accept the market economy, but one that's very firmly rooted in what I argue in Cathonomics is the social democratic tradition. And this is one of the things that your book, Cathonomics does so well,
0: because you walk us through each of these encyclicals over the last two centuries, and then you offer a kind of 10-point distillation of the basic ideas that you find that show up again and again. As we're moving towards our first break, Because two of those ideas are particularly technical, I'm going to ask you to identify and define those before we take a break and get into the next part of our discussion. Two pieces that are interrelated that come out of your 10-point distillation are the ideas of solidarity and subsidiarity. Could you briefly define those two for us and tell us how they interrelate?
1: Yes, absolutely. So solidarity is the notion very simply that we are all responsible for all. That definition was given by Pope John Paul II. It's a moral response to the interdependence of human life. And in a world of globalization, that gives rise to a kind of universal solidarity and a universal common good to overcome what Pope Francis calls a globalization of indifference. So that's solidarity. Now, subsidiarity is a complicated principle And it's often misunderstood and, dare I say it, ideologically charged. Subsidiarity says that all decisions should be taken at the lowest level possible, but the highest level necessary. And both of those conditions are very important. So it says that higher level authorities, including the state, should help and assist lower level communities, but not usurp their rightful authority. But that is not an excuse for free market ideology. There is a positive role for the state in helping and aiding these lower level communities like unions, like families, like worker cooperatives, like voluntary organizations. It's really a principle directed towards a flourishing civil society. And as we know from the work of people like Robert Putnam, our civil society and our voluntary organizations have been gutted over the past 40 or 50 years during the neoliberal era. And I would, not, I would say that's probably not a coincidence. So I don't know. Does that answer your question of what solidarity and subsidiarity are? They're often considered to go together, to go hand in hand, so you can't really have one without the other. If you're just
0: joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette. We're talking about his recent book, Cathonomics Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette. He was for two decades at the International Monetary Fund, where he worked as a speechwriter to the managing director. He's also a member of the College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, and he is a Gabelli Fellow at Fordham University and a senior advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Cathanomics, How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. In the first part of our conversation, we were talking about these documents that the Catholic Church, particularly the popes, were putting out called encyclicals. And there are several points where, in your book, Cathenomics, you highlight in particular an encyclical from Pope Francis called Laudato Si, and you characterize this as the most important document of Francis's papacy. And it seems as if this document also is summative in some ways— of previous encyclicals. So I wonder if you would be willing to give us an overview. What is Laudato Si from Pope Francis doing that you see as being very important for this moment in the 21st century?
1: Yes, I'll start by saying that the term Laudato Si comes from a poem by St. Francis of Assisi, Laudato Si mi signori, praise be to you, my Lord. And this encyclical is really infused by the spirituality of St. Francis of Assisi. And as we know, Pope Francis took the name Francis after St. Francis of Assisi, as he put it himself, who was the saint of nature, of the poor, and of peace. So really, he was the saint of what we today call sustainable development. And Laudato Si' is really a moral narrative for sustainable development. What is sustainable development? It's the idea that we can have economic progress, but we also need to make sure that people are included, that poverty is eliminated, and inequalities are kept to a minimum. And also, crucially, that we need to respect the limits of nature. We need to respect the environment. And Laudato Si' is very clear that we are facing a joint social and environmental crisis. We have so much poverty in the world, about 700 million people living in extreme poverty in the world earn around $2.90 a day. And at the same time, we have massive levels of pollution, climate change, ocean acidification, biodiversity loss, destruction of ecosystems, all kinds of environmental that are described very well in Laudato Si. Now, Laudato Si is not just a spiritual document lamenting the state of the natural world. It's also a prophetic cry for conversion at both the personal level and also at the institutional level. So this was written in 2015 with a view to influencing what became the Paris Agreement on Climate Change whereby all the nations of the world agreed that they would take action to limit greenhouse gas emissions to stop the rise of global temperatures to between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. And I think Laudato Si was very instrumental in getting us to that agreement. It provides a global moral narrative of our present environmental crisis. And this is why I argue that it will be seen in history as one of the most important encyclicals ever written because it's so prophetic about the urgent nature of the environmental crisis that's facing us.
0: Now, I wanna make sure that I heard correctly something that you said there in that answer. Did I hear you suggesting that this document, La Si was instrumental in helping secular leaders to reach a global agreement on halting the progression of climate change and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? I just want to make sure, did I hear that correctly, that you're saying that Pope Francis was actually an influence in
1: the secular realms, not just in the moral realm? I think that's right. I think it might be going a little bit too far to say that without Laudato Si' there will be no Paris Agreement, but it certainly had a major influence on the secular leaders. In fact, in September 2015, when the nations of the world endorsed the Sustainable Development Goals at the United Nations, that session of the United Nations was opened by Pope Francis. And that was a very powerful moment when Pope Francis addressed the nations of the world.
0: I want to circle back to something else that you said just a moment ago. When you were talking about the characteristics of Laudato Si, one of the things that really rang out for me was balance, that we can't have unfettered growth and we can't have unfettered conquest. We can use the resources of the world, but not in a kind of rapacious way where we're just taking and taking. As I heard that aspect of your answer, I heard an echo from an earlier part of your book, Cathenomics, about Thomas Aquinas. And this was one of the things that really just blew my mind because I never knew this about Thomas Aquinas but Thomas Aquinas talked about wealth acquisition. And I believe that the term might be natural wealth, and if I'm misremembering that term, but if you could just tell my listeners, what did Aquinas say that echoes what Pope Francis is saying in Laudato Si about wealth acquisition?
1: Yeah, like the Gospels, like the Hebrew Scriptures and the Prophets, like the Church Fathers, Aquinas was very suspicious of wealth accumulation. He thought that it actually led to the corruption of the soul. And for this reason, he argued that we should be very careful about moderating our desires and limiting our acquisition of what he called natural wealth, which is stuff, goods. But even worse than natural wealth is what he called artificial wealth, and that's money. And the reason for that is it's possible to desire money without any ends and without any limits. And Aquinas regarded that as very dangerous. So he thought that our desires should be limited and put it in more technical terms, low order goods should always be subordinated to higher order goods, by which he meant spiritual goods. Yes. One other piece from this.
0: You mentioned that Pope Francis in 2016 opened that dialogue at the United Nations. And if I'm remembering correctly, his speech at that time echoes a theme that he was saying at various speeches through 2015 and 2016. And it was this notion that we who have means in the sort of privileged part of the world, that we have an obligation, a duty to the poor. And I'm going to quote it here because it gets translated in a couple of ways, but to help the poor to become dignified agents of their own destiny. And I wonder if you can talk about how that notion of helping the poor become dignified agents of their own destiny fits into this larger idea of Catholic social teaching.
1: Yeah, I think it's going back to a question you asked earlier. It's really about subsidiarity and solidarity coming into creative tension. So in other words, you want solidarity. Solidarity means providing the financial resources to lift help the poor lift themselves out of poverty. But subsidiarity says you want to do this in a way that's not just throwing money at them in a very paternalistic manner, but in a way that respects their agency and dignity as human beings. And so I think it's very important. Pope Francis says, he actually says, you help the poor by befriending the poor and by learning from the poor. It's not just a one-way street. And I think that's for me, one of the most, as an economist, it's one of the most challenging aspects of his teaching that it's not just about designing a effective social transfer system. It's actually about how do you get the poor to be dignified agents as their own, of their own development, as you put it. It's very powerful stuff. If you're just
0: joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette, and we're talking about his recent book, Cathonomics: How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. I want to return to a phrase that you used briefly in an earlier part of our conversation, but it comes up again and again in your book, Cathonomics. It's this phrase, Homo economicus. And it is a way of thinking about the entirety of human life in economic terms or under the umbrella of a market. Now, first of all, when I characterize it that way, I'm paraphrasing a lot of different pieces of your argument. So I want to make sure I have the basic piece of it correct. And then if I do, and feel free to correct me, but if I do, if you could tell us a little bit more about what is the danger or what is the maybe also the attraction of the concept of homo economicus in our current economic
1: conversations. Yes. Homo economicus basically means rational economic man. And this is the idea of human nature that lies behind neoclassical economics. And it's quite simple. It basically says you maximize your utility in a consistent and coherent way. And that basically means you have preferences, you have desires, and you want to maximize the satisfaction of your preferences and your desires to the best way possible. And that's the rational thing to do. Now, when you think about, that's a really weird definition of rationality. Because in the, in the classical tradition of, say, Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas, rationality is all about not giving in to your animal instincts to consume as much as you desire, but actually curbing those animal instincts to see balance in life. Rationality is about discerning what is good for you and then actively choosing what is good for you. And what is good for you is a life of balance and moderation. It's not maximizing anything. So in neoclassical economics, it's a really weird moral narrative that it puts forth. So I'm going to take a moment
0: and tap dance in what you just gave me. And I'm going to bring in a thinker that is not referenced in your book, Cathonomics, but who I believe complements your work very well. And that's the 20th century German philosopher, Hannah Arendt. And one of the ways that Arendt thought about human organization was she called one sphere of human organization the economic sphere. And to be very, very brief, she said, That's the realm of known outcomes. You put in a certain amount of raw material to the factory, you get out a certain number of widgets, and if you get out too many or too few, there's a problem. You want to be able to accurately predict a kind of future. And then she talked about a realm of politics, and she said that's where everyone in the body politic is coming together and is saying, I need this, and those needs conflict. And in the process of weaving together A solution to these common problems, you're actually coming to unknown futures, things that you can't necessarily anticipate the way that you could in a factory. And her diagnosis of the way that the 20th century went wrong is that political sphere had gotten pulled under the economic sphere where everything became a sort of realm of determined outcomes. Now, when I present this to you in these broad strokes, does that sound similar to what you're describing in this concept of homo economicus? And if it's not similar, where are some of the differences that we should be paying attention to?
1: Yeah, I think it does actually sound similar. And I'm not that familiar with the thought of Hannah Arendt, but it definitely sounds similar. It also reminds me of the thought of another great German philosopher who just died, and that's Pope Benedict XVI. And in his remarkable encyclical from 2009, written during the financial crisis called Caritas and Veritate, he basically argued that the economic sphere should not be this values-free zone where self-interest reigned, that it had to be seasoned by solidarity and fraternity and gratuitousness. So in other words, the social life had to take over the economic life, as it were. So yeah, that's what comes to mind when you mention that.
0: I love that move that you just made to Pope Benedict because I think that's exactly consonant with what Hannah Arendt is saying. And let's stay with Pope Benedict because if I'm hearing Benedict correctly in Caritas and Veritate, what needs to happen is this moral model that says that the ultimate good is profit and the maximization of profit has to be set aside. And instead, profit needs to be put to the use of the common good. And sometimes that's going to mean that business is going to suffer. Now, when I characterize it that way, does that sound like the kind of analysis that Benedict is bringing? Or
1: are you seeing something else in that encyclical? No, I think that's exactly right. He says, actually, it's in very concrete terms. He says very clearly that we should not have shareholder capitalism, which is the maximization of shareholder value, which of course goes back to our friend Milton Friedman. But instead, we should have stakeholder capitalism, whereby a business is responsible to not only its shareholders, but its workers, its suppliers, the environment, and indeed the social and political community at large. And he suggested maybe Maybe we should come up with the idea of what he calls hybrid firms that can make profits. Profits are okay, but they can also have a social benefit at the same time. He was very much into the idea of business with a social purpose.
0: And this really brings us into the sort of back half of your book, Cathonomics, where you start talking about the roles of large human organizations like governments And their role, as in your analysis, is, among other things, regulative. In other words, it can put the brakes on the kind of unfettered movement of the market towards profit and redirect that towards other ends. Tell us about how you see the role of governments in this kind of economic analysis that you're bringing.
1: Yeah. So for neoliberalism or libertarianism, the government is supposed to be a neutral referee that kind of guarantees contracts and property rights. But for Catholic social teaching, the role of government is much broader. It's influenced again by those two favorite principles, solidarity and subsidiarity. So it would say such things like you need to protect the poor, you need to protect workers, you need to grant people basic economic rights like food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education. You need to make sure that workers have proper power to be able to bargain collectively by forming unions. And also, quite radically, I would argue, you need workers to have a sense of workplace democracy where they can sit on boards of directors and exercise some management authority in firms. That's a very German system which comes directly out of Catholic social teaching. So in all of these areas, the government, business, and labor are very much oriented towards the common good and away from a system of simple homo economicus and profit maximization.
0: A moment ago, you mentioned that there's a certain school of thought in neoclassical economics that sees governments as sort of neutral referees of markets. And if we were to characterize the kind of rhetoric here in America, at least, I think of Ronald Reagan saying government is not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. And so what I'm hearing you saying, and feel free to correct me, is that Catholic social teaching would not agree with Ronald Reagan on that moment. It would say, no, there are certain points where government absolutely is the solution to the kinds of problems that are sometimes caused by markets. Now, when I say it that way, does that sound right, or would you say it in a different way?
1: That sounds right. The way I would say it is The role of the government is to further the common good, including in economic affairs. Therefore, the government cannot stay aloof from economic affairs. That's stated quite explicitly in Catholic social teaching. And so if we begin to talk in this direction, it begins
0: to sound like a kind of planned political economy. Or does that push us towards something like the model that China has, for example, where there is a real kind of robust social safety net and the poorest are lifted up, but there is still some action of markets. Is that what we're looking for or is this pushing us in a different direction?
1: I think in a slightly different direction. In the book, I argue very much that it pushes us towards the kind of post-war social democratic stroke New Deal order where you have markets which you also have a guiding role of the state, a directing principle, And you also have the state protecting people from the swings of fortune that come with any market economy. You have tightly regulated finance to serve the common good. You have worker power. You have strong unions. You have high taxes to curb the excess political and economic power of the very rich. So I wouldn't say it's the Chinese model. The Chinese model is actually not great with social safety nets. And it's not great in terms of, obviously, with state direction and authoritarianism. There's no kind of scope in Catholic social teaching for such an authoritarian model, I would argue. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're
0: speaking today with Anthony M. Annette. He is a Gabelli fellow at Fordham University and a senior advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University and spent two decades at the International Monetary Fund, where he worked as a speechwriter to the managing director. He's also a member of the College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Today, we're talking about his recent book, *Cathonomics*: how Catholic
1: tradition can create a more just economy. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt.
0: Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette. He is a Gabelli Fellow at Fordham University and a Senior Advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University and spent two decades at the International Monetary Fund, where he worked as a speechwriter to the managing director. Today, we're talking about his recent book, *Cathonomics*: How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. Well, I want now to turn to the subtitle of your book, *Cathonomics*: How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. You and I are speaking right now in the American context We have international listeners, and so for those who may be unfamiliar, there is a sort of principle in American politics which is sometimes called the wall of separation between church and state. And briefly stated, it means that there can't be a state religion imposed, and there are times where, and restrictions on, the kind of meddling of priests and other religious leaders in the political sphere. And so I want to ask you, and you even say it very clearly in in your book, *Cathonomics*, that you're not trying to create a kind of naive, if we can just get everyone to believe the right thing, everything will be better. But in this part of the conversation, I really want to start to dig in and sketch out, how would it look to have Catholic tradition create a more just economy? What are some of the first steps that are necessary to begin that process that would not run afoul of the kind of principled restrictions that I've just mentioned?
1: Yes, thanks for that question. So I wrote the book with kind of two audiences in mind. One is the Catholic audience, who might be not so familiar with what their Catholic tradition had to say about economic justice, and the answer is quite a lot. But I also wrote the book for a more secular, broader audience who might be disillusioned with the neoliberal order and open to something different, and open to a different kind of moral narrative. And my argument there is we have these principles that derive from Catholic social teaching, and for a Catholic, they obviously come from the Christian faith and Christian belief, but they can also be accepted on their own merits. You don't need to believe what the Catholic Church teaches to accept principles like the common good or the universal destination of goods, or solidarity, are good principles upon which to order the economy. So I would hope that the book would appeal to a wider range of people than just Catholics. So that's kind of why I wrote the book. Let me see if I can
0: restate what I just heard you say and push us in a slightly different direction. So we started the conversation with the premise that the last four decades of neoliberalism haven't worked the way that it was promised on paper that it would work. Things didn't trickle down. The rising tide did not lift all boats. We have more and more poor. And I've heard the statistic that every 30 hours, a new billionaire is created while the global poor continue to multiply. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, we're at a crux point, or maybe even it's better to say a crisis point. And please correct me, but what I hear you saying is we can't continue doing neoliberalism, that if we do, if we simply say it's going to be business as usual, we are abandoning a kind of obligation that we have to the future, even to the present. And so if I'm hearing that correctly, that we're at a crux point and we can't continue business as usual, we can't continue neoliberalism, then is it fair to say that you're presenting your book Cathonomics as one possible solution to the problems that you have diagnosed in neoliberalism And you're not saying it's the only solution, but you're saying it's a coherent solution. It's got centuries of thought that weave into it. And it has real, from those encyclicals again, real concrete practical things that we can begin applying right now to the problems that neoliberalism has left us. Now, when I say it in all those ways. I'm drawing a lot of things together. So have I got it right? Would you correct me? And where would you adjust what I just said?
1: Yeah, I think you've more broadly got it right. And I think that the situation is kind of urgent because just look at where we are. Neoliberalism promised higher growth. Didn't deliver. Growth was actually lower under neoliberalism than under social democracy. It did deliver extreme inequality. It did deliver stagnant wages hollowed out working classes, destroyed communities, debts of despair, and it's having a grave impact on our politics. It's leading to all kinds of political dysfunctions as we all know so well. So what I do in cathonomics is I argue that we are at a very dangerous inflection point, that neoliberalism is on its last gasp. It's dying out because it's fading because it's failed. But what replaces neoliberalism is a narrative that has yet to be written. And I am arguing that a kind of reinvigorated social democracy attuned to the challenges of the 21st century, underpinned by the kind of moral principles that come out of Catholic social teaching, can offer a promising way forward. So that's kind of the main narrative of my book.
0: So if we look back over the financial crisis of 2008-2009, one of the things that came out of that was a kind of radical counter-narrative to capitalism, typified by, among other things, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And in many ways, that saw itself in revolutionary terms, or it characterized itself in revolutionary terms, and the media surrounding it had that veneer of revolution. Is what you're arguing for in Cathonomics? Revolutionary in that fashion of Occupy Wall Street? Or is this something that could be accomplished simply by applying different momentum to the levers of power and order that are already there? Do we need to overthrow things to make this work under a regime of cathonomics? Or can we begin to heal what is broken in the present system?
1: I don't think it's revolutionary at all. I think we've done it before. It's called social democracy. In Europe, we had the social democratic stroke Christian democratic alignment in the post-war era. In the U.S., we've had the New Deal order. And none of this is revolutionary. The New Deal was well accepted by Democrats. It was well accepted by Republicans. And it was a very highly successful 30 or 40 years. And I would actually argue that there is a actually a strong conservative streak in the New Deal social democratic order. Because it basically says that the kind of the moral narrative of neoliberalism, this idea that markets and freedom can liberate people from any shackles that bind them is actually quite destructive to human nature. And instead, we need to get back to an older view where we have duties and obligations and responsibilities towards one another. And that's really, in my view, what social democracy is all about. It's all about this notion of solidarity and reciprocity and obligation.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Anthony M. Annette. We're talking about his recent book, *Cathonomics*: how Catholic tradition can create a more just economy. So I want to stick with this for just a second, because in the present political age, at least here in America, but also there are cognates in Europe as well, there are certain types of, if you will, movements of solidarity, but they're focused on hypernationalism, sometimes even fascism. And fascism definitely has a certain sense of economic goals as well as social goals. Are there ways in which we can look at Catholic social teaching and other Catholic teachings, this kind of storehouse of ideas that we have, and protect them from being ransacked by these other movements, these others that want to use a kind of Catholic identity for the purposes of violence rather than solidarity?
1: Yeah, I think so, because, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but at the root of everything in Catholic social teaching is the idea of human dignity, the dignity and worth of every human person and linked to the common good and if we accept this and if we accept an idea of human rights rooted in human dignity as catholic social teaching does then we immediately have the antidote to these kind of repressive ideologies like communism or fascism or hypernationalism because they would go against the dignity of every human person
0: that brings us back to an idea that we touched on earlier in the conversation and this distinction between libertarianism And liberty. And if I'm hearing you correctly, libertarianism is engaged and interested in a certain type of market flourishing or profit flourishing. Is it fair to say that, in contrast to that, we could suggest that liberty is concerned with human flourishing and with the robust presence of human dignity among all persons in the body politic? When I say it that way, does it sound right or would you say it differently?
1: Yeah, I think it sounds right. I think there's nothing wrong with liberty from a Catholic perspective, but it would argue that liberty does not mean the liberty to make wrong choices, to make economic choices that go against human flourishing and your own well-being. So in other words, liberty should be directed towards both the individual and common good. That's the way I would look at it. One of the popes who wrote about this, Pope Paul VI, called this notion of autonomy an erroneous view of autonomy, the idea that liberty should be unleashed in a kind of do-whatever-you-want manner. That's not consistent with Catholic social teaching, but it is consistent with libertarianism. Libertarianism is very much you should have the freedom to do whatever you want, and no government or no authority has the right to tell you not to do it. Well, in this speaks to a distinction that
0: I think of often, and I'm actually happy now to be able to present it to you. When we think of rights and the rhetoric of rights, it can oftentimes be presented as a kind of zero-sum game. For me to fully enjoy my property rights or my liberties, you have to in some way give on yours. Your rights lessen when my rights increase and vice versa. But I don't think that actually is the same with dignities. If I increase your dignity, if I help you to become a more dignified agent of your own destiny, to use that language from Pope Francis, then I'm not only
1: increasing your dignity, but increasing my own. Does that sound right to you? That's 100% right. 100% right. I would agree with that. I would also add that in Catholic social teaching, rights are always attached to duties. So if you have a right to something, you also have a corresponding duty. So for example, if you have a right to have the opportunity for decent, rewarding work, you have a duty to take that work seriously and work hard. So there's always a duty attached to rights. And where we go wrong is when we invent rights that have no duties attached to them. That's what leads us to libertarianism, I think.
0: And There's another piece in your book, Cathonomics, which we haven't touched on yet, but I want to make sure my listeners hear about. And that is a diagnosis of... And it gets uh, different terms get used for this, but social evil or systemic wrongdoing. And that is something that also gets eclipsed in the libertarian narrative, the notion that I, I think of Mitt Romney, who basically said that corporations are people. And so the notion that we can individualize even something as collective as a corporation down to a single individual Talk to me a little bit about the role or the analysis that Catholic social teaching brings to markets and other sorts of things as systemic evils.
1: Yeah, there's a principle in Catholic social teaching called structures of sin, and this kind of would be impediments to achieving the common good uh, in society. And we all live within these structures of sin. We all live in a world based on an inheritance of mistreating the indigenous people in the United States, on mistreating African-Americans through the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow. We all live in that society. Now, are we individually responsible? No, but this is still a structure of sin. Racism is a structure of sin within society that we are all in some sense responsible for collectively. So yes, so in our economic life, as you mentioned, there are plenty of examples of these kinds of structures of sin. I would take the environmental crisis. We in the rich world have a massive carbon footprint. We have a massive environmental footprint, way more than our brothers and sisters in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. The nature of how we live in America means that is built in. But it's really hard to escape unless we kind of move out to a shack in the middle of the woods with no electricity. It's really hard to escape from this. So, and that's fine, but we just have to be cognizant of that and to try and strive for just solutions. And in your
0: answer just now, you raised something which you don't touch on in your book, but I was thinking of a lot as I read your book, *Cathonomics*, And that is the relationship of flourishing and dignity to comfort. And I say that as a person who lives in the first world, who is middle class in income, I'm extraordinarily comfortable in this world. And sometimes I can get very scared to lose my comfort, even if it means that someone else might have more flourishing, more opportunity, less violence, less oppression. And talk to me about how comfort plays into this notion of structures of sin. Can it be a kind of distraction from the real questions that Catholic social teaching draws us to?
1: Yeah, I think the most challenging Christian teaching, the single most challenging Christian teaching is this idea of the universal destination of goods. And the church fathers put it very simply that any goods you have or any money you have that goes beyond meeting your necessities belongs to the poor. Now, none of us live a life like that. Well, maybe a few saints do, but 99.9% of us don't live that way. And I find that very challenging teaching, to be honest, that if we take universal destination of goods seriously, then it means in a sense that our surplus is really not owned by us. It's actually owned by the poor. And that presents a grave moral challenge to all of us who live in the United States, and indeed in the rich world today. This
0: question may seem slightly odd given the very technical nature of your book, but it clearly took time and thought and effort and possibly even prayer to be involved in the writing of this book, Cathenomics. And I'm wondering if you're willing to touch on it, how has your own spiritual life been enriched as a result of your work on this project?
1: Yeah. So I've always been, I'm a cradle Catholic. I grew up a Catholic. I drifted away from the church when I was in college and then came back later in graduate school. And I fell in love with the social teachings of the church, especially as I was getting more disillusioned with the neoclassical economics that I learned in graduate school. And, you know, the more in love I fell with the social teachings, the more in love I fell with the faith in general especially in the person of Jesus, who I believe he is, who the church claims he is to be. So yeah, so uh, for me, the social teachings were really a great boost to my faith. Now, that might be strange. Most people probably wouldn't come at it that way, but that's certainly been my trajectory. Well, Dr. Anthony Annette, I
0: have to say, I learned so much from your book, Cathenomics. I knew when I opened it up, because I had heard you talk about it in other contexts, I knew that I was in for quite a ride. I had no idea, as I said earlier in the conversation, how rich the tapestry was you were going to weave for me. I learned more about my own Catholic faith. I learned more about the history of Catholic social teaching. But I also learned some ways of looking at the world that I've been living in for the past five decades that helps me now to understand some of the choices that I have made and some of the choices that were made for me. I know it took a long time to think about and to synthesize and to bring together all the pieces that made up this book. Thank you for taking the time to research it and to write it,
1: but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate your kind words from the bottom of my heart, and I was delighted to have this conversation. It was a lot of fun, and I very much appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me on your show. It was fun for me, too. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Anthony
0: M. Annette. He is a Gabelli fellow at Fordham University and a senior advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He has a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University and spent two decades at the International Monetary Fund, where he worked as a speechwriter to the managing director. He's also a member of the College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, *Cathonomics*: How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.